Hello, everyone. See, uh, am I on? I might be muted. There we go. Perfect. Uh, yeah, Ross was asking, you know, for those of you who know me, I typically like hand draw my slides and he's like, are you going to be doing that? And the answer was no, but I didn't want to tell him no. So I just added one hand drawn slide that says hi. Side note, Peter, is it cool if I close this trap door? <laughs> or, okay, cool. There is an entire trap door that's uh, closed there. Um, but now we're doing all right. Hello, everyone. My name is Rhett. Uh, as David mentioned, I was one of the pastors here at UTD for several years, was a student here, um, altogether was involved for a decade. And just in May, they decided to ship me away to Arlington to pastor over there, and they've been tearing me apart in Arlington. So it's good to be back. Uh, it just feels very warm and safe here, and I love it. Uh, and we're going to start out with a game that I love to play during my sermons, which is what are these people crying about? <laughs> which, side note, having four screens, <laughs> it feels overwhelming. It's a lot of crying faces. Any guesses what these people are crying about? We got some more criers right here. Uh, no more potato chips. <laughs> That's an option, no more potato chips. Their team lost. That's a good option. We got a couple more crying faces. They stepped on a Lego. These are all super convincing. I heard one other guest back there. No friends? Perhaps. I think we've got one more, one more parade of crying people. Yeah, so the reason these people are crying is eye contact, which is kind of wild, right? So in 2010, there's this famous uh, performance artist named Marina, Marina Abramovich, who is from Serbia. She had been in performance art for decades at that point. And most of her performance art was actually like really weird. Like when you think of like pretentious performance art and there's someone like, like, like that's what she did, right? <laughs> But she got up in her 60s and she's like, that's enough flailing for a lifetime. Let me do something more meaningful. And what she did was this kind of piece that was in a museum. And uh, basically the way the piece worked was that she sat there and people could come sit across a table from her and just make eye contact. And you might think like, oh, that's so stupid, right? Uh, people sat there from, there was no talking just sitting and staring. They sat there for any amount of time from a few minutes all the way to several hours. And what ended up happening was that a lot of people were so not used to feeling seen that they ended up crying from this experience. It was such a different experience for them, especially, I believe it, it was in New York, just the hustle and bustle of that life to be super busy, doing your best, and then suddenly... You're just sitting there and someone is noticing you. And there was an entire photo book dedicated to this, an entire website of just people crying from the eye contact that they made with this person. And I think what that shows me is that a lot of people don't feel seen. In a contentious time to be alive, a very busy time to be alive, uh, we interact with people all the time, but my guess is there's a lot of people, including those in this room, that don't actually feel noticed, seen, understood. Um, 
And I want you to ask yourself that, like, do I feel seen? Do I feel like people have an idea of me that isn't actually the real me? Do I feel like people see the effort I'm putting in or just my failure? Do I feel like people see my intentions and my heart or just my ugly moments? Like, do I feel seen? And if I do feel seen, is it positive? Because I think some of us uh, anxious folks feel a little too seen, but it's because we feel seen in a negative light. Um, thousands of years ago, uh, before these people in 2010 had a profound experience of being seen, there was a woman in the ancient Near East who had, I believe, a much more profound experience of being seen. Uh, and we read about her in Genesis, and her name is Hagar, or Hagar, if you want to go full Hebrew with it, right? Um, and Hagar was a slave woman who was part of the family of Abraham and Sarah, right? And if you know the story of Abraham and Sarah, uh, they're told by God, hey, y'all are going to have a child. And Abraham's like, <laughs> I'm in my 90s, right? <laughs> like, I'm way too old for that. And so rather than trust God, Abraham and Sarah come up with this plan for him to go and sleep with Hagar, who up until this point, you can imagine, was probably pretty invisible, right? She just takes care of things behind the scenes. She doesn't have her own family. She doesn't have her own identity. And suddenly, she's pregnant, and so she goes from behind the scenes to very important, right? Abraham starts to notice her. Like, this is his first chance to have a kid. But instead of being seen in a positive light, she's seen as a problem, a source of conflict. You can imagine if you were a woman in, in ancient times where, like, the ability to have a child was so important to what was perceived as your value, and you weren't able to have one, and suddenly your husband is having a kid with another woman, the jealousy that might come up. And so Sarah starts to mistreat Hagar. So in what might be her first time being noticed and being seen, she's seen not as this faithful person who's been helping them all these years. She's not seen as the person who's going to provide an heir to Abraham. She's seen as a source of conflict. And she's treated so badly by Sarah that she decides, oh, it would be better for me to just run away into the desert than to live with these people. Like, I would rather be away from any, anyone's judging eyes and anyone's angry looks. I'd rather just be out in the desert. And I don't know if there was another town she thought she could make it to or if this was tantamount to suicide for her or what, but that's what she chooses. And in the midst of that, God, who she has maybe no concept of, meets her in the desert and tells her, essentially, I want you to trust me and go back there. I'm going to get you through this, and that son that you have is going to be part of this huge line of ancestors. I'm going to make an entire nation out of him. And Hagar, who again was so invisible to these people, becomes the first person and one of the only people in the entire Bible to give God a name. And the name that she gives him is the God who sees me. which might have been her first time feeling seen, right? And not just being a problem. 
And so just as you're reflecting on whether or not you feel seen by each other, by your peers, by your professors, you can also ask yourself, do I feel seen by God? And if I do feel seen, do I actually feel understood? And if I do feel seen, is the thought of God seeing me, is that a thought that makes me feel valued or makes me feel terrified? Because I know a lot of people who either don't feel seen or feel terrified at the thought of God seeing them. I know people who have, who have had to go to a mental hospital because of the fear of that. And then somewhere in between 2010 with this performance artist and 2000 BC with Hagar, a man who we believe was also God showed up on the scene and his name was Jesus, right? And Jesus, uh, as y'all I think have read about in your cores in Matthew 4 and 5, he went around and he called his disciples along to him and then said, we're going to go fish for men and tell people about the kingdom of God. And at one point, he stands on a mountainside and people gather to him and he starts to preach to them. Probably the most famous sermon of all time. Probably the most famous speech of all time. The Sermon on the Mount. Um, which so many, so many pillows have been stitched on with quotes <laughs> from the Sermon on the Mount. Do not worry. <laughs> I said that like it's not a good quote, but you know what I mean. Um, yeah, and I think in this sermon, Jesus is looking out at this crowd and seeing them, right? He's seeing people who are mourning, and he's saying, blessed are those who mourn. And he's seeing people who don't know where their next meal is going to come from, and he's saying, seek the kingdom of God, and God will take care of that for you. And he's seeing fathers who are trying to provide for their kids. And he's saying, I know that you're doing your best and you wouldn't give them a bad gift, right? He's looking out at this crowd and noticing who they really are, right? And in the middle of that sermon, uh, he says this, and this is one of our readings. He says, your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is unhealthy, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is. And it's kind of tucked away amidst all of these teachings about money and judgment. And he's like, your eyes are lamps. And it's like, what? <laughs> I mean, that'd be kind of wild, right? Like if I was like, I think ears are kind of like streetlights. <laughs> I'd be like... <laughs> so anyways, be generous. <laughs> it's like, what? Um, yeah, so what is Jesus getting at here? This is an example of something where maybe our intuition can get us a certain uh, distance towards what he's getting at, but a little bit of work in terms of understanding the cultural background really does help. And when you look into the cultural background, you actually see that there is this common theme in the teachings of Jewish rabbis of the idea of a good eye or a bad eye, or a generous eye versus a stingy eye. That this was like how we might talk about glass half full, glass half empty, and we immediately know like, oh yeah, these are two ways of seeing the world, right? They had this idea. And in Hebrew, it was a good eye was ayin tovah, and a bad eye was ayin ra'ah, right? And, and they taught about this before Jesus, and they taught about this after Jesus. This was not a new idea. 
It was just the way that he was using it. Um, and where this idea comes from is when God is first creating everything, right? You know, he's creating and it says he did this and then he saw that it was good, right? And this ayin word is a, is a sight word and the word for good there is tov, right? Which is not just good, it's much more superlative and excited. It's more like, and he saw, yes, right? Like it's like, oh, okay, cool, right? And so an ayin tovah sees the goodness of what God has made everywhere throughout the history of our, of humanity, uh, in friendships, in creation, they see God's fingerprints, God's goodness everywhere. And that's described as a generous eye, right? There's a rabbi named Rabbi Eliezer, and he said, Ayin Tovah means a person should look well upon others, wish them well, be happy in their successes. A good eye does not refer to the sharpness of one's sight, but the generosity of one's vision. Beautiful eyes look for the good, for if you look for the good, that is what you will see. And I think Jesus understood the unique power of eyes, <laughs> of sight, just like his brother James would later write about the unique power of the tongue and of speech, right? It's something that he had thought about a lot, right? And I think it's interesting to think about like hearing is just a receptive sense, right? Like I cannot choose where to hear. I can kind of tune my attention to something or try to ignore it. But to a certain extent, my hearing is always coming in at all times. You know what I mean? And no one's ever says like, why are you, why are you hearing all angry at me? You know, why are you hearing all judgy right now? No one says that. But eyes are an active sense. I can choose where to look and I can choose how to look. Right? So I can ignore someone. I can also look at them, and I can look at them in a way that makes them feel seen. I can look at them in a way that makes them feel judged. I can look at them in all sorts of ways, a way that makes them feel like maybe they need to fix something in their teeth, right? <laughs> There's all sorts of things and values that we communicate with our eyes. And I think that the assertion Jesus is making here, which is our next slide, is that a generous eye is a gift to all that if you can learn to have a generous eye, that it will be a gift to everyone, including you. And uh, as we know, Jesus did not like hypocrisy. And so if he's talking about having eyes that are full of light, if he's talking about having generous eyes, then we can be certain that we can look at his life and the things that he said and did and see those generous eyes of Jesus. And one story that you can see that in that Jacob read for us was the story of the widow's mite or the widow's coins, right? Where, where Jesus is at this incredible temple in Jerusalem that was just the pride of the Jewish people. These massive stones, all sorts, all sorts of gold. And probably all these rich people from all over the place are coming with their huge gifts. And this widow walks in and she has kind of the equivalent of two pennies, Right? Like you can imagine if someone was like passing the offering basket at like a really nice church and everyone's like folding checks, you know, they're like swiping their nice cards, their Chase Sapphire, right? And then someone puts in two pennies. You'd be like, that's kind of worse than nothing. <laughs> like, like that's kind of worse than if you just didn't give, you know what I mean? It's, it's kind of, ooh, like, right? 
And that, yeah, it would be kind of em embarrassing, you know, um, especially because it, you know, a lot of people weren't giving weekly. And so it's like, this is all you have after months to give is, is two cents. And Jesus points her out among everything else to his disciples who are busy just gawking at the amazing temple they're in. And he's like, that's the coolest thing you're going to see today. That's the best thing you're going to see. Because this is a woman who doesn't have anything to give and still found what she had and brought it. Right? He didn't see that it was unimpressive and that it really would not go towards doing much. Like it would still be two cents. I don't think he did a five loaves and two fish thing on the money. You know what I mean? It was still two cents. And yet he viewed that as the best offering that had been given there. Right? Other people saw that it was unimpressive. Jesus saw the heart behind it. Uh, another story is the story where Jesus says, let the little children come to me. It's in Matthew 19, 13. It says, people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. And Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. So again, He's this, at this point, pretty famous traveling preacher. And these people are interrupting his sermon to bring their kids up. Which, can you imagine, like, going to, like, a mega church and there's just this line of people with babies. They're like, my turn, my turn. Like, you would be like, one, that's very distracting. Two, pretty disrespectful. Like, we're having our altar call right now. You know what I mean? And it's like they're interrupting it to seek out something for their kids. And so the disciples are like, excuse me? Like, do you know who this is and who I am? <laughs> like, don't come over here. And again, Jesus does not see the inconvenience, which is a real inconvenience, and the lack of being considerate, which is also a real thing. What he sees is parents that this is their only chance to receive something from Jesus directly from the hands of God. And rather than doing it for themselves, they bring their kids up there. And when he looks at those kids, he doesn't see just kind of this lump of nothing that doesn't know anything yet. He sees innocence. He sees this helplessness. And he's like, that's the kind of person that I'm looking for. Like, that's the kind of person that has room for me, who's, who's curious enough and open enough to receive me, right? That's what Jesus sees. And the generous eyes are everywhere. He, he's generous when he looks on people's past. Like, you can think about the woman at the well. And Jesus is well aware that this woman has had five husbands and the person that she's with now is not her husband, which is logistically impressive. <laughs> um, and, and he brings that up, but there's no like, and that's why you can't talk to me. It's like, no, I'm talking to you. And in fact, you're who I want to be my missionary to this town. That's what Jesus sees. He sees the hunger there. He sees the desire to actually know God. The, the woman caught in adultery. I love this, this sculpture that's in a chapel where you just see, you can imagine everyone else just looking away in disgust and Jesus is looking in the eyes of this woman, right? And everyone's saying, stone her, stone her. And Jesus is saying, if you haven't sinned, go ahead and stone her. But if you have, <laughs> go away, right? And, and they do. And then Jesus kneels down, it says, and, and he says, where are the people who are accusing you? She says, they're not here. He says, me neither. Go and sin no more. Right? But he sees her. And he doesn't see just 
the sin. Um, I think you see generous eyes when Jesus looks on people in the present. So uh, a leper walks up to him in Mark 1, and Jesus not only notices him, but is filled with this mixture of compassion for him and indignation that he's in this position, and he touches him and heals him. Right? He doesn't see, like, this man is breaking cleanliness laws. And he really was. Like, that was incredibly inconsiderate. Why is this leper walking up to these people? Like, but what he sees is the faith, right? When he uh, talks to the rich young ruler, he doesn't see just the fact that this guy is rich and privileged and arrogant and thinks that he can just come alongside Jesus and be like equals with him. What he sees is something that makes him sad. He sees that the, this guy has this barrier to following Jesus. And it says, Jesus looked on him and felt compassion for him. He's like, gosh, I hope that it can click for you. Not just like, you think you know more than me. And he's an, even generous when he looks at people's future. Right? Like he comes alongside the disciples and finds them. And, oh, <laughs> like I, I mentor, you know, people who lead cores now at UTA, but I did it at UTD. And if, if people who are leading core for me, like, like who I was mentoring, did some of the things that the disciples did, like Brandon would be hearing about that, you know, <laughs> just wild stuff. Like it'd be equivalent to, to like a sophomore walking up and be like, can I direct focus? Some of that, like they said, can we sit at your right and left hand when you come again in power? And he's like, what? <laughs> and again, so like there's these arrogant people who also don't know much. They're blue collar guys that are pretty arrogant. And Jesus looks at them and he's like, that's the rock I'm going to build my church on. Like, that is a bold proclamation, a very generous way to look at someone's future, to see that level of potential in them. And I think it's worth noting that I really do believe that God looks at you with generous eyes. That he, he looks at the people in this room, and he sees the entirety of us, including our mistakes, but he doesn't define us by those, that he sees our past with grace, and he sees our future with hope. And that's how I believe Jesus looks at us. But it's worth noting that Jesus has no patience for people who do not look with eyes of grace, for people who have a stingy eye. If, if eyes of grace are quick to give patience and quick to, to give the benefit of the doubt, a stingy eye says, you don't deserve my patience. You don't deserve the benefit of the doubt. You don't deserve that. And Jesus has no patience for this, right? This is in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you've heard it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Anyone who says to a brother or sister, you fool, is answerable to the court. Anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Whew. He also says, don't judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. The measure you use will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to, the, to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all that time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, <laughs> take the plank out of your eye then you will see clearly to remove the speck in your brother's eye. 
I think what you see Jesus getting at here is God takes the way that we look at each other seriously because it's hypocritical of us to ask God, please look at me generously. Don't look at my past. Don't look at my mistakes. Don't look at my inability to do things. Don't look at my selfishness. Don't look at my lack of faith. And then to turn to someone else and run them through that filter, you just ask God to not run you through. Because that's telling him, no, you don't actually understand me. You don't actually get what I have done for you. Like that's saying like, eh, the gospel might be cool. Don't really want it. Like the gospel's nice for me, but that way of looking at people with grace, that's not worthwhile to, to extend to other people. So really the thing Jesus has the least patience for is a stingy eye. But now that we've seen the, the power of a generous eye and the, and the danger of a stingy eye, I want us to look at how can we actually use generous eyes? How can we have a generous eye that is a gift to all? And so I'm going to look at some examples. One of them is conflict and arguments. Yes! <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of times in the moment of conflict, someone becomes just what you think they did to you. Like you become defensive and you see them as someone who is like woken up and said, how can I destroy you today? Right? Or you see them as just the biggest idiot who's so intellectually dishonest. You know what I mean? Like that's how we see people. And if you're forgetting what it's like to see people that way, election season is coming up soon. You'll get plenty of practice either seeing someone that way and having to repent or being seen that way. Am I wrong? And I have experienced, even in myself, becoming proactively defensive with some of my closest friends, family, with my wife, just kind of being like, like they say something, they, they bring up some issue with me, and I'm like, who the heck do you think you are? And I just, in my brain, I start winning an argument with them, right? And it's like, I've, you know, it's kind of funny, but in reality, like I've allowed myself to make a character of that person, caricature, and just see them as hostile and stupid, right? And I have had to out loud say to myself, stop. Like, stop doing that. Like, you're not living in the real world right now. I think a more positive example of a generous eye is just noticing people. Noticing cashiers and janitors and the homeless. People who, like Hagar and her time, are used to being pretty unnoticed. Right? Like they can't possibly be worth talking to. They can't possibly have a story worth hearing. Right? I think we can impart value to someone just by noticing them. Um, I think my wife Kaylee is so good at this generous eye that notices people. She's currently like studying the Bible with multiple just like baristas from Starbucks that she's just met and struck up a conversation with. And it's not because she's like an alpha male, but for evangelism, it's not like she like wakes up. She's like, yes, like I'm going to share the gospel 10 times. It's literally just that she notices people and she looks at them generously. She's not weirded out by weirdness because it's there, right? But she looks with a generous eye. I think in a service like this, we can look with a stingy eye and say, 
how come oh, how come that was out of tune when they first started playing and that transition was not so good and this guy said this one sentence that I'm going to choose to interpret in the worst possible way and decide they're a heretic without talking to them, right? It's like, you can look at the stingy eye or you can go there with the assumption that maybe God has something he wants to say to you. And it could be through up here, but it could be through your brother or sister in Christ out there who's a freshman. You can go there looking for the good and God will show it to you, right? We can have a generous eye in fellowship. Um, I think we can have a generous eye when we look at our, our friendships and our relationships. I so often hear people kind of say this thing in our community of like, none of my friends really care about me. And it's like, do they not care about you or do they just fail at every single time making you feel cared about? Like, have you asked them? Do you see them trying to make you feel cared for? Or are you just assuming that because you deal with some anxiety and depression, your friends don't care about you. That's something I've dealt with. I've, you know, in this process of moving to Arlington, sometimes it can feel like, oh, no one's pursuing a friendship with me. And it's like, no, I just feel lonely because I moved. And it's a lot of new people. They're not doing anything wrong. They've actually done a wonderful job of pursuing friendships with me. And I think on top of all of that, we can have generous eyes when we're dealing with difficult or annoying people. Because as you see in 1 Corinthians 13, love always hopes, right? Love does not look for an excuse to write somebody off. It always hopes. And it, and, it, and it hopes that the person who you know who keeps making the same mistake or the person you know that really annoys you can actually become a blessing to you and to others. And on top of all that, a generous eye can be a gift to you if you develop a generous eye. Because for one... The first area where we see ayin tovah, if you remember, is creation. And so if you have eyes that look for the good and know you're going to find it, you will see the blessings and gifts and goodness of God just as you walk around. You'll see it and when you people watch. You'll see the, the beauty and the goodness of God when you walk by an animal, when you walk out in nature. I'm not being like a weird tree hugger here. This is just like foundational theology. And on top of all of that, if you have a generous eye that is hungry and thirsty to see God, to see his righteousness, then you'll find it, right? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. If, uh, the number of you know, testimonies I've heard from students over the year where they're saying, like, I was just looking to find a community like this. And lo and behold, they did. Right? I think in a lot of ways, it's not that we're manifesting something, you know what I mean? It's just that we're looking for it. Right? If you're looking for good, if you're looking for friends, if you're looking for uh, the chance to generously love someone, you'll find that opportunity and be blessed by it. One thing I want y'all to reflect on, and I'm about to move us on to, to worship, is just one way that you can grow in having a generous eye. So I think that's that's a couple of slides down. Yeah, one way that you can grow in having a generous eye. So we're, just talk about that for like one minute with your neighbor. Um, but I would encourage you to keep reflecting on it. All right, well, I know I'm, I'm cutting people off short. And, and I hope that you can look at me having to bring us back with a generous eye. Ha, 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 ha. But I'm going to go ahead and bring us back. Uh, worship team, y'all can go, go ahead and come back up. Um, I do want to make one quick side note 
caveat, which is to say that a generous eye is not a naive eye. Like, you can be incredibly generous, incredibly quick to give grace, even to people who have hurt you, and not be dumb. You know what I mean? So, uh, a generous eye is willing to forgive one's enemies, but a naive eye doesn't realize that enemies exist. Right? In John 2, in the end of John 1, it says, Jesus loved everyone, but he would not entrust himself to anyone because he knew what was in each person. And so, as we seek for God to give us these abundantly generous eyes, I want to remind us that a generous eye looks to bless others, but it, it doesn't look expecting to find someone who can replace God. It doesn't look expecting to find a perfect person. Um, and so it's, it's totally possible to grow in the generosity of our vision while also growing in wisdom. And if you want to know what that looks like, just look at Jesus. Because he did both of those things incredibly well. And it was not safe, necessarily, relationally for him. It was not easy, but it was incredibly powerful. Um, so I'm just going to pray for us, and then we'll move on to worship. God, thank you so much for being a God who looks um, on your creation and looks on us as people and as your church with a generous eye that's willing to, to look past the sins of our past and to look past our lack of potential and our lack of dedication and is willing to see potential in us and look at us with hope. God, I ask that you would help us to be people who have generous eyes as we look at your creation, as we look at each other. And I ask that as you promise in the Sermon on the Mount, that the fruit of the goodness of the eyes you give us would be light in ourselves and in our community. It's in my prayer. Amen.